Good morning, church. So in the parable of the Minas in Luke 19, these are the words of Jesus. He said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 Minas and said to them, do business until I come. Verse 14 says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, listen to these words, we will not have this man to reign over us. According to Wikipedia, Elizabeth II was queen over 32 sovereign states, 15 at her death. Her reign of just under 71 years was the longest of any British royal ever and the longest reign of any female sovereign ever in history. When her father died in 1952, Elizabeth, then 25 years old, became queen of seven independent Commonwealth countries. The number of her realms varied over times. As she gained some territories and then lost some, some territories became independent and others became republics. Shortly after Charles was confirmed king of Antigua, the prime minister Gaston Brown said he intended to hold a republic referendum within three years to ascertain whether or not they would remain under British rule. So here's my question for us this morning, because I'm kind of a logical guy. How sovereign is a person if a nation can say, no, thank you, we are no longer under your rule? How sovereign is that person? Keep that thought in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, as we continue in that verse-by-verse -verse study. Let's catch up real quick from last week. Last week, we met some people the Lord had called into service, and remember what they did. They left their old life behind, and they followed the king. And I said, you know, as we look at people throughout the Bible, the people that God called, the people that God uses... It helps me with my feelings of unworthiness and insecurity and, and doubt. Remember who we met. First, we met Peter. Remember, he was in the inner circle of Jesus's three followers. You know, he, he's one of the greatest. And yet he blew it all the time. He was strong-willed. He was impulsive. He was a brash follower of the Lord Jesus Christ who failed him many, many times. But after surrendered to the Holy Spirit, Peter became one of the strongest followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also met Andrew. Andrew was only known for one thing in all of Scripture, and that was bringing people to Jesus. When you think about the 66 books of the Bible, and you think about how few the number of people really are that are in that book, and then you think about all Andrew was known. This is all he was known for, was bringing people to Jesus. What if Jesus... Put me in the Bible this morning. What did Jesus put you in the Bible this morning? What's the one thing that you want to be known for? There could be worse things than bringing people to Jesus. Then he called the, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, to follow him. And they left their father and the servants and left everything behind. And, and they followed Jesus as well. And the main lesson for us was, no matter what you're gifting, no matter what the characteristic God has given you in life, if you will give them over to the Lord, he will use it for his glory and for your good, for his kingdom. 
When you commit to following the Lord Jesus Christ, what you are committing, what you're signing on the bottom line for is your purposes, God, are my purposes. Your goals are my goals. And you'll become a fisher of men. So today we're going to see some of the things that Jesus did immediately after he called these four rugged fishermen. And then we're also going to learn the bottom line is that Jesus is king of all. Jesus is king. So if you have your sermon notes, Roman numeral one, teaching scripture should be normative. If your Bibles are open, Mark chapter one, let's begin with verse 21. Mark 1, 21. It says, then they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So the Jewish Sabbath was from Friday at sundown when you could see three stars in the sky till Saturday at sundown when you could see three stars in the sky. And while you're studying the other Gospels, you find out that Jesus' teaching in the synagogues was a normal part of his ministry and his life. It's very normal for him to go into a synagogue and teach. Back then, unlike churches today, synagogues didn't have like a hired pastor or hired speaker. What they did is they would let all these different educated people come on in and speak on the passage for that day. Here's our passage. This guy is learned. Come on in and preach. So Jesus would often take advantage of this opportunity. Hey, I think I might know that one. I've heard that verse once before. And they would say, come on in and teach. So here in Mark, we're not told exactly what he taught, but we can find out from the other Gospels. But we're taught, he taught as one having authority. Luke reports this in Luke 4.14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the news of him went throughout all the surrounding region. There in your notes. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Matthew tells us this in Matthew 4.23. Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching. Catch this. There's what he's preaching. Listen up. The gospel of the kingdom. What was Jesus teaching in all their synagogues? The gospel of the kingdom. As Jesus taught what he was doing, they already had the Old Testament Bible. And so what Jesus was doing was opening up the Old Testament and showing them prophecies that he is currently fulfilling right before their very eyes. And he's expounding on the Old Testament. The one that's written of in the Old Testament is right here before you teaching. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was teaching the kingdom of the gospel. Gospel means good news. Jesus is there saying, your Messiah is here. The good news of the kingdom is right before you. You see, when the rabbis would teach, usually what they would do, instead of just quoting scripture after scripture, what they would do is quote other rabbis. This rabbi said this, and this rabbi said that, and this is what they said about the law, and this is what they said. And that's what they would teach. But here comes a guy that all of a sudden he's teaching like almost he knows what he's talking about. And he's teaching this stuff. We've never seen it this way before. Wow. And they're astounded. This is what David Guzik said of Jesus's teaching with authority. He said, Jesus taught with authority because he had authority. He brought a divine message and he was confident that it came from his father. He wasn't quoting from man. He was quoting from God. 
He taught with authority because he knew what he was talking about. You can't teach with authority if you don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus knew what he was talking about. And by the way, he believed it wholeheartedly. See, when you believe what you teach, it comes through to your audience clear as a bell. If you do not believe what you're teaching, huh? So the people were astonished. And, and that word astonished carries this word to be astounded. Yes, but it means to become dumbfounded or shaken. They were actually shaken because of what Jesus was teaching. They were like, whoa. This wasn't just, oh, this is interesting. No, no, no. This is wow. They were dumbfounded. They were shaken because the one teaching had authority on all scripture. And he seemed to know what he was talking about. There in your notes, Jesus is the ultimate authority because he's the author of scripture and he's the God of scripture. You see, there's over 300 Old Testament prophecies of Jesus Christ, and we can get into all the mathematics of it and everything else. But there's over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled while here on earth. And again, he's opening up their Bible to him and says, what does that mean right there? Who's this one talking about right here? Who is that? And their eyes are starting to open. And this is more than a rabbi. This is more than a teacher. Wow. Who is this guy? He also told him, by the way, you're going to reject my kingdom. And you can just imagine in his early ministry, they're like, no way. We'd never reject you, Jesus. Here's one of the passages he would have taught them out of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root of dry ground. He has no form or crumbliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. The whole book of Isaiah is pretty neat, but Isaiah 53, many of the skeptics believed that Isaiah was written after Christ was crucified because it's just too close to who he is. It, it, it's just perfect of who Jesus is. And so they said it must have been written after. And up until the time they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, many people believe that. But once they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they couldn't get away with it. Isaiah was written 800 years before Christ walked the planet. And so Jesus, can you imagine him at the synagogue opening the book of Isaiah to Isaiah 53 and saying, here I am. You're going to despise me. You're going to reject me. But I'm going to rise again on the third day and I'm going to save you from your sins. What do you think they were thinking when they, the report of him rising again was? Wow. And so his whole ministry, his teaching ministry was to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, communicate his will. From the written Old Testament to the people. And not to pick on any specific denomination or churches, but you know, there's a lot of churches today who don't follow this model. So what should our model of teaching be? I know what we'll teach the headlines. What happened on Friday? Let's teach that. Or let's soften the blow of the gospel. Let's soften the blow and make it more palatable for people who don't want to hear that there is only one way. Modern churches, a lot of them, will not preach the pure word of God. 
This is what Jesus himself said. After he rose from the grave, Jesus' words, after he rose, he said in John 20, 21, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. What was he sending us to do? Preach the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. There in your notes, last week we learned that Jesus wants us to be fishers of men. However, that doesn't mean we get to change the bait. Otherwise, we're not gaining real disciples. All right, so in the middle of this, imagine this whole scene. The Son of God is in the synagogue. He's preaching from the Old Testament. He's got them locked in. They're shaking. This stuff is making them shake. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Roman numeral two there in your notes, the sermon is interrupted. Look at verse 23. Now, or immediately, there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's a lot in these couple of verses. Let me just tell you, this was one of those moments that I, as I was studying, I was like, whoa, <laughs> you may not know this, but sometimes I talk to myself in my office and it's, I, I get too excited. I have to shut the door because the rest of the staff thinks I'm having a convulsion or something. But this was one of those times I was like, listen to the words of this demon. Listen to these words. And, and the timing of what just happened is so interesting and it's so relevant for us today. In the middle of Jesus preaching the gospel, this spirit screams out and interrupts him. Matthew Henry said this, this man was in the synagogue, yes, but he didn't come either to be taught or to be healed, but he came to confront Christ and to oppose him and hinder the people from believing who Jesus was. That was his whole goal. Can you imagine in church? Someone coming just to disrupt things? Surely not. I can't tell you the amount of times that God is moving, doing something amazing, and a spiritual attack happens. Being the Carabaptist that I am, and I got God in this pretty little box, I never realized the amount of spiritual attacks that happen within ministry. No way. Surely not. That being said, I'm also not the guy who sees a demon in my hot cocoa, right? Look, there's a demon. But every time, every time, almost without fail, if God is moving, God is doing something great, there will be a spiritual attack. And, and the problem is, most of the times, us Christians, we go into something, God's going to do this great thing, and, and we're in our spiritual pajamas, Instead of in the full armor of God ready for the battle. Know this. If God is moving, there will be opposition. I know it's hard to believe, but people will complain about lighting and sound and all kinds of things. And they think that it's just a, a simple complaint. Let me tell you something. The most inopportune times interrupting what God is doing. But in Luke's account, this is what we're told. Now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out in a loud voice. In the Greek, that's mega voice. Mega. I don't know what mega scream sounds like, and I really hope none of you are going to show me this morning. But imagine this. 
You think Jesus was taken by the surprise, by the way? Here he is preaching the Old Testament and this demon, blood curdling, mega scream. And I mean, if I'm Jesus, he's dust. But like most satanic attacks, the interruption was loud and up front. And imagine he's preaching the word of God and this demon just screams out. And again, look what he says. Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? And I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Guzik said this. In describing the man who was demon possessed, Mark used the same grammar that Paul used to describe Christians being in Christ. The unclean spirit was the evil lord of this man's life. Similar, the warding between Christians having Jesus and this man having a demon demonstrates that he is in us and we are in him. There in your notes, we are Jesus possessed in the right sense of the word because his filling and influence is only for good. So let's break this down. Notice the first words, leave us alone. And I had to ask myself this question. When the demon said, leave us alone, was he claiming that there were a lot of demons there that day? Or was he saying that I'm with the people and us and we want nothing to do with you? Was he trying to draw the people away from Jesus by saying us or was there a lot of demons there? The demon continues and this time he says, what have we to do with you? And then he calls Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And what does that mean? The demon's sitting there, I believe, trying to say that nobody here wants you, Jesus. So just take your show on the road. We don't want you. But Matthew Henry said by him calling Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, was to try to show the people that Jesus was nothing more than a mere man. He's just a man. Good teacher, sure, but that's all he is, is a man. But then the demon asked, did you come here to destroy us? You may not know this, but demons know the word of God pretty well. First John 3, 8, we learned this a couple of weeks ago. For this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Why was he manifested? That he might destroy the works of the devil. So here's this demon asking, did you come here to destroy us? And then the demon says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. No question about it. James 2.19. You believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. There in your notes, this demon knew exactly who Jesus was. And it also knew what Jesus' plans were. To come and free people from the bondage they were in and offer them the forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the king. The second member of the triune Godhead, he obeyed the father to come as savior of the world, but he's still king. All right, Roman numeral three. So let's look at his response. Again, I told you what my response would be. You remember last week I said that Peter took out his sword in the garden and cut off the ear of the servant? The staff was talking about that on Monday and I said, me and Peter, I'm a little worse than Peter because I'd have taken my sword out and taken off his head. With Jesus, that demon would have cried out, I had have smoked him, right? If I had the power right there, I mean, you're dead. 
But let's see what Jesus does. Look at verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout the region of Galilee. So what does he say? Be quiet. Get out. I love it. But notice this demon wants one last hurrah. He's like, okay, I know I got to obey the king, but one last hurrah. And he screams out again in another mega cry. Just one more time. Convulse the guy and scream out. There in your notes, like Satan, demons are out to destroy. Similar to the magicians in Egypt who tried to copy the miracles of Moses, they could only do more harm. They could not create a blessing. If you don't know the story of how Moses brought the ten plagues from the Lord to Egypt, and every time he would create locusts, the magicians would create more locusts. And they could do more harm and more harm and more harm. They couldn't stop the judgment of God and they couldn't create a blessing. Here's the thing. Although not equal with God, not as powerful as God, Satan has been granted some power to deceive and repeat certain miracles. That's why we need to know not all miracles are of God. Remember that. Not all miracles are of God. If something goes against scripture and someone's claiming it's a miracle because it looks like such a blessing. No. Scripture tells us very clearly that demonic activity and demon possession were a common thing in Galilee. If you read through Josephus and you read through the Bible and you just see it, it was a very common thing there. And you'd ask why? Well, back to prophecy. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Again, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 9.1 says, In the Galilee of the Gentiles, verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Again, 800 years before Christ, Isaiah said, That area is going to be spiritually dark. And they're going to see a great light. Look again at verse 27. And it says, then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they have to obey him. Josephus, the historian, told us that in that day and in that time, there were these guys that did exorcisms and they would do it with all these cantations and all these fastings and rituals and all this hocus pocus and they would try to make these demons leave but oh, voodoo and all that sort of thing and so Robertson said the people were accustomed to the use of magical formulas by the Jewish exorcists but here we see something totally different this is this is not normal Jesus the king speaks and the demon stands up and says, yes, sir. He had to obey. So they're stunned. Again, Carabaptist, okay? I mean, if, if I see a demon, I'm not the guy. Don't call me if you got a demon in your house. I'm going to send Andy. <laughs> I, <laughs> but imagine seeing this. This demon-possessed guy. 
And you're just watching this all take place. And here's Jesus. And he says, shut up, get out. And all of a sudden the guy's healed right there. They had to be wondering, you know, I've seen these exorcists before. I've seen all this before. They do all this ritual voodoo stuff. And all of a sudden, but how does this guy do it with just his words? What is going on? And Kenneth Wu said the report of this new teacher was spreading like lightning because this is so different. No one was texting. No one was tweeting. No one was emailing. No phone calls. It just spread by word of mouth, face to face. You got to know this new teacher. This is amazing stuff. There in your notes. Notice the power of someone who has personally experienced Jesus telling another man or woman face to face about how Jesus changed their life. That's the very definition of a fisher of men. Jesus is the king of the world. And even demonic spirits have to listen. Here's the difference between him and Charles, though. No one's voting him out of office. All right, four. So gratitude and service. Look at verse 29. And notice the timing. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue... They entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came, took her by the hand, lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. So immediately, Jesus leaves the synagogue, just had this whole thing, and you got to know this was emotionally draining, right? You got to know that Jesus has been ministering all over the place, and, and because he's Fully man and fully God, he's tired. But the first thing that happens, he gets over there to, to Peter and Andrew's house. And the mother-in-law's sick. No, Jesus goes over immediately and grabs her by the hand and heals her. There's so many accounts throughout the New Testament of Jesus healing the multitudes. But here we see a personal touch. And this is my Jesus, right? A personal touch. To a woman who's sick with a fever. And we're told in other places that it was a mega fever. Again, so she probably would have died had Jesus not healed her. And Jesus just grabs her and lifts her up. And notice what he does. Hey, is everybody watching? Hey, you got the cameras rolling? I want to make sure everybody knows that I'm about to heal this woman. No. He's not looking for attaboys or anything else. There's a need and he meets it. This all-powerful, present-everywhere God is concerned about you. Me, personally. That, that's just mind-boggling. There in your notes, Jesus desires a personal relationship. Yes, he died for the sins of the world, but his love and his grace and forgiveness comes in a personal offer to individuals. Romans 10, 13 says, forever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And again, Luke, the physician, tells us this was a mega fever, a mega fever. And they told him about her at once. They immediately appealed to Jesus. You know, I love that saying, all we can do now is pray. I hear the person's dying. Well, all we can do now is pray. Immediately, they told Jesus. I think that's a good lesson for us. Someone's sick. There's a need somewhere. Immediately, why don't you tell the person who can fix it? If my computer breaks down, I'm calling a guy who knows about computers. 
If my car breaks down after I ruin it even further, I'm calling a guy who knows about cars. Why not go to Jesus first? Why is a last resort? I I just don't understand that. And, And I wonder if we have that immediacy. Bring the sick person to Jesus. And Jesus foreknew everything that was going on, and he had the same urgency to heal her as he did the people there in the synagogue. Jesus hears about it, boom, heals her. There in your notes, today Jesus still meets people's needs in the same way in homes and churches. Healing broken bodies, broken hearts, broken marriages, and fractured families. And again, no big production, he just does it. And notice verse 31, and it says, And immediately, instantly, the fever left her. And what'd she do? She served. She served. So here's the question. What was her motivation to serve? What was her motivation? Was it guilt? Was it duty? Was it regret? No. It was a grateful, thankful heart for what Jesus had done for her now she serves. Do you know that's how he wants us to serve him too? Not duty, not regret, not guilt. There in your notes, the Lord wants us to serve him the same way Peter's mother-in-law did, out of a grateful and thankful heart. We're told that God loves a cheerful or hilarious giver. Here's the problem. When we serve out of the flesh or duty, maybe you're different than me, but when I do it because I have to do it, I burn out really easily and I feel used and I feel abused because I'm not doing it with the right motivation. When I'm seeking accolades from people, you know, I pour it all out and someone says, you know, you could have mentioned this verse. I'm like, thanks. You know, you really could do things this way. Thanks. But when I'm serving the Lord, I have all the accolades I need. I don't need to hear from anyone because if I'm serving the Lord the way he told me to serve him. I'm serving my king, and he's the king of my kingdom. Here's another lesson for us. You know, Jesus never touches a life just so you can live for yourself. If Jesus has touched you somehow, he never touches a life just so you can spend it on yourself. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the apostle Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So as we close, here's my conclusion this morning. I started talking about how Charles was confirmed and that Prime Minister Gaston Brown said, we're going to hold this referendum within three years to, to ascertain whether or not we want to stand under British rule. And I asked, how sovereign can a sovereign be If the kingdom, the nation can leave their rule. I don't get it. Jesus is the king of the world. Whether you like it or you don't like it. He is. And even the evil spirits have to obey his command. And although Jesus would allow his creation. Imagine this. Jesus would allow his creation to crucify him. Hang him on a tree. And put him in the tomb. He allowed that. He never once gave up his sovereignty. He never once gave up being king. Philippians 2.9, Paul said, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have two choices. We can willingly bow to the Lord Jesus Christ here and now and serve him as king. Or at the great white throne judgment, you will bow. Whether you want to or not, and then you'll face him as the judge of the world. Jesus is the only one true king who willingly went anywhere and everywhere to touch and heal and love and restore people. What king does that? From morning till evening, Jesus exhausted himself serving other people. What king does that? Why? Because the king of the world knew that we needed him much more than he needs us. I've often wondered, you know, it's that robot theory. Why didn't God just create us and force us to worship him? Why didn't God just create beings? As he's creating, he foreknows I'm going to rebel. He knows I'm going to reject him. He knows all this. Why didn't he just make me? Make me willingly bow down to him at the moment of birth. Why? Imagine being married to that person. You want your spouse to just do, you know, I mean, sure, there's times, right? <laughs> but most of the times we want a love relationship, right? We, we want to share that relationship when my wife just does something for me just out of love. No motivation, no nothing else, just love. How sweet is that versus you got to. By the way, if you met Sandra, you know I don't use those words. You got to doesn't work. But he loves us. And so he created us and he wants us to serve him because his love compels us to serve him. Jesus enters our home. He enters our church. He, he enters the streets and he just wants to heal broken people. And we can never exhaust his love. The love he has for sinners in a broken world just should blow your mind. He's so magnificent. He, he should be our magnificent obsession, as the song says. And, and so in our narrative this morning, we see Jesus is king over the world. He's king over the synagogue. He's king over the demonic spirits. He's king over sickness. He's king over household. The only question left is, is he your king? Are you going to be like that person in that parable that says, we will not have this man to reign over us? You can do that. There in your notes, Jesus has absolute authority over all powers because Jesus really is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But he's also a gentleman and will not force anyone to bow to him as Savior. Romans 10, 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So really quickly, I just want to end, give you an opportunity of what exactly does it mean and how does that happen? It's, it's fairly simple. Easiest thing you ever do, the hardest thing to live out the rest of your life. If you try to do it in the flesh, it's impossible. Admit that you're a sinner. God calls this sin. I agree with him that that action is sinful and it's only against him have I sinned. Ask him to forgive you of that sin and he'll wipe away every sin number three is the easy one ask Jesus to take over your life not only as your savior but as your king and lord 
there's where flesh has to die. That's where I have to die. He's king. He's Lord. I'm not. And then finally, turn away from your sin and turn towards the Lord. The bottom line, justification in the Lord's eyes only happens through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so here's how we end. Jesus is king. Just like Charles is king of Britain, whether Britain likes it or not, he's king. Jesus is king of everything, whether we like it or not. The only question is, is he your king? I want you to contemplate for a moment who this King Jesus really is. I've thought about it till it hurts that why would anybody, anybody, anywhere create something knowing they would reject him? Why? And then why would he then come down as a baby, grow up to take the cross for my sins? Why? It just goes beyond all understanding. And the bottom line is this. There's a God in heaven. I'm not him. We have these finite minds that cannot understand. But I know. I trust. I believe. He's proven himself over and over and over again. And that's what it comes down to. He said, if you will trust me, I'll save you. You'll be mine. You'll be part of the family. And I'll give you eternal life. And I've said it before. Knowing Jesus is life's greatest adventure. Not always easy, but it's never boring. Let's pray. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithklamath.com. Make sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed.